I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table Podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair, and let's begin. Rebecca Hanover is the New York Times best-selling author of The Similars Duology. After graduating from Stanford University with a BA in English and Drama, Rebecca joined the writing team of the CBS daytime drama Guiding Light, where she earned an Emmy Award. She's never lost her love of books, particularly YA. She now writes young adult as well as adult novels full-time from her home in San Francisco, where she enjoys matcha lattes and a complete lack of seasons. When she isn't writing, she can be found in a yoga class or reading anything Dave Pilkey with her husband and three kiddos. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks so much for having me. This is such a treat. Before you were writing novels, you were an Emmy Award-winning writer for the long-running soap opera The Guiding Light. A favorite of the Four Clink sisters. How many times did Reva get married? Oh my gosh, this feels like a quiz. <laughs> many, many times. I know she was like Reva, Shane, something, 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 Lewis, Shane. She, she kept remarrying the same guys though. Yeah, right. I so like Shane of... was in, Josh Lewis was in there like, yes, many, many, many times, probably 15. I mean, I, I would say something in that ballpark. I know this is before your time because you're too young to have been on the staff when this happened. I was a teenager when Reva died and came back as like an angel. And then somehow she came back as a real person, not an angel. And I don't know how that happened. That's probably like one of those things that people go, oh gosh, let's, good thing we've moved on and nobody asks us. Leave that that one in the vault. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, That sounds vaguely familiar. Yes. It might've been before my time oh, writing definitely. on the show, but I love that you started out of the gate with Reva because she <laughs> is, she is guiding light, but it did officially end in 2009. Oh, wow. God, that's been a minute. Yeah. That's been a minute. I'm like, where did the time go? You were in your writing cave. That's where, that's what happens. We go in our writing cave and we lose all track of time. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> like the soap so, operas do. People yes. just keep coming back. Yeah. It's like, you've got way more than nine lives when you're a soap opera character for sure definitely and way more than like whatever the legal amount of marriage is right you can exceed that in soap opera world how did writing for soaps translate into writing YA and adult novels great question I would say it translated incredibly well in that I learned so much from those days writing for Guiding Light I like to say that nearly everything I learned about storytelling was from that job. And it was a dream job, first of all, mostly because I was just working with some of the most talented folks. You know, the thing about soaps, as you know, as a soap viewer, there's so many episodes. There are so many episodes. And so everyone, actors, crew, directors, writers, we're all working furiously to create so much content, right? So you had to work efficiently, you had to work fast, you had to leave your ego at the door and just jump into whatever your episode was going to be and jump into the voices of these characters. Not only was it like a crash course in storytelling, but it was a crash course in like character work, honestly, because that's the thing. Everything on a soap stems from these characters. That's why the first thing you asked me about was Reva. You didn't ask me about some specific plot even. You were like, Reva, Reva, because the heart of these shows are these characters. And then, yes, you would get these incredible 
you know, twisty plots that would come organically from the characters' lives. But it all started there. Just looking at Reva as an example, when we're writing, it's important to not make them look like cartoon characters and all good and all bad. And those characters, you see this wonderful side and they're sweet and wonderful. And then you see this really gritty, ugly underbelly when you least expect it. I can see how that would translate. Yeah. Yeah. They're so complex. And we all felt like we knew the character. Like we would talk about them like real people, (laughs) which is what you do. You know, for me, for a novel to really work, I have to kind of believe these characters are real, at least on some level. And the other thing I would say about your question is that I'm a huge plotter. So I've never pantsed anything. (laughs) I'm not a pantser. When I start working on something, I know vaguely or even more, more than vaguely where it's going to go and where the important story beats are. And that 100% comes from TV writing. I don't think I'll ever change. I'm, I'm pretty religious about having an outline. That's what we would do when writing for soaps. We would really have a structure and a foundation first before diving into the actual writing of the scripts. I heard Bev Jenkins and Jill Shalvis in an RWA conference years ago, and they were talking about the importance of a series Bible if you're writing a series, so you can keep track of these people. So going back to the soap opera, did you guys keep track? Like, did you guys map out where they've been and where they're going and and have a series Bible? A hundred percent. We had a very long running Bible that we would have new writing teams come in and out, you know, inevitably. And so that Bible would be really important to onboard any new writer or head writer. The writer's assistants, that was part of their job was to keep up with all that. I actually started as an intern And then was a writer's assistant and learned, God, I learned so much assisting the writers. And a lot of that was our job at the time. I'm really having to dig deep into my brain to remember all this, but we had this tracking document and every week we would track. It was pretty detailed, like tracking exactly where the characters went and who they saw and who they talked to about which things. So, (laughs) I mean, we probably had thousands and thousands of pages that anyone could pull out and reference if they needed to, which is pretty amazing to think about, but it would come in really handy. And sometimes it'd be really important. Like what was that conversation that Tammy had with Jonathan? And then you could look back and find it and and make sure that you were getting it right. Can you imagine what the logistics of that whole process before everything was on the computers? No. Whoever had to transcribe it. The truth is even when I was, what I'm referencing now with the tracking documents, that was really before we had cloud storage. So we were- Storing, I mean, because this was like the aughts, you know, this was like yeah. 2004 or whatever. I think we were storing it on some kind of like disk. Flash drive or something. <laughs> or, or, yeah, or it was all printed in these file cabinets. I think we had cabinet after cabinet filled with these documents, which is kind of, it's kind of amazing. What a great conversation starter. What's interesting about you? Oh, I used to work on The Guiding Light. Yes, that that one gets pulled out a lot, like for my husband's holiday party. Like they'll often do like a trivia and they'll be like, can anyone guess who worked on a soap? (laughs) So it gets, yes, it gets used. It's a good trivia. It wasn't one of the ones that was on for like a year or two and then just faded away. That one was. Yeah, it it was the longest running. It started in radio and it actually, I think this is really true. I don't think this is just urban legend, but basically they decided when TV came out, they decided to take the half hour segment that was on the radio and do 15 minutes on the radio and then put the other 15 minutes on TV to get people to turn the radio off and turn their TV on, which is 
honestly the most genius thing. It sounds like something we do now, like, you know, to get the, to get the cliffhanger, you got to go, go over to this other medium. And then that's how they translated people over to TV, which I think is genius. Your new adult novel has been called The Best Sword of Psychological Suspense by Christina Alger, who I just am a huge fan of. So please give us the scoop on The Last Applicant. It is set in the high stakes world of Manhattan private school admissions. In a nutshell, domestic suspense, psychological thriller, however you want to categorize it. It's this idea of this admissions director, Audrey Singer, who is sort of the decider for this kindergarten through 12th grade, very sought after private school. And it's the story of an applicant's mother, Sarah Price, who becomes obsessed with getting her kid into kindergarten and ultimately stalks Audrey, the admissions director. And then from there, it kind of turns into this cat and mouse, deeply enmeshed kind of situation between the two women where hopefully you don't know where it's going and hopefully full of a lot of surprises. Have you known people like Audrey and Sarah? Guiding Light was filmed in New York. So I lived there for about seven years before moving out to San Francisco where I live now. The whole book is completely fiction, but I am a mom to three youngish kids. And I think I've known some version of Audrey and Sarah, whether it was from my New York days or now being a parent and being enmeshed in some of these circles of parents and having gone through this process of applying to kindergarten for my kids. As crazy as that sounds, it is a real thing. So yes, they're completely from my imagination, but I feel like this book was a lot of years of me sort of gleaning and like gathering, taking notes, anthropological notes on on sort of on the world. And then, and some of it comes from me, although I am not these characters at all. I'll just make that clear. A lot of it, yeah, came out of things I've experienced and people I've known and, and, and sort of this vibe, this world of intensive parenting. Like, you know, I've referenced <laughs> some of the other interviews I've done, which is that there's this amazing Atlantic article about intensive parenting. That might be the article where they coined that term. Helicopter parenting, intensive parenting, snowplow parenting. That's where you push the obstacles out of the way of your kid, <laughs> um, which is so apt and and crazy. When I was a kid, I had helicopter parents. Sorry, mom and dad. I, we've talked about this a lot. I know they would probably nod and say, yes, they were buzzing around me. But in those days, it was like you were a helicopter parent. If you know you wanted to make sure your kids did their schoolwork, had a couple of extracurriculars, like applied to college in a timely manner, you know, tried their best, et cetera. Now it's like off the charts what people mm-hmm. are doing. I mean, there's like eight-year-olds playing soccer with earpieces with their parent, like coaching them. Oh gosh, that's, when my kids were little, I cannot imagine the earpiece. Right. Well, because a lot of these parents get banned from yelling along the sidelines because they'll <laughs> yell at the referee. So I think the next level version of that is like secretly coaching your kid in an earpiece, which is crazy. But point being, I have to also say, I am totally complicit in a lot. Well, I've never done that. I'm not. I'm the person at the soccer game who's like, which, which team is, which goal is my kid trying to, oh yeah, yeah. That, that one. But I get it. Like I get wanting the best for your kids. It makes a lot of sense. This is not a criticism. It's more something I'm deeply curious about and sort of fascinated by. And like, which things are we doing that are ultimately helping our kids or even hurting them? There's a new book. I think it's called Never Enough. It's a nonfiction book about this topic and about like achieving versus accomplishing and how 
this sort of empty achievement that, you know, we push on ourselves and on our kids might not quite be the right thing. And that accomplishment where you can just feel proud of yourself for anything that you put time and effort into may be like a much healthier way to to view things. So anyway, it's something I think about a lot. And a lot of that got put into the book. If it makes you feel any better, my children are grown mm-hmm. and I still think about it. I see the way things have changed from the helicopter parenting to, you know, this intense parenting to this, you know, to see where people are like, yeah, I'm going to wait and see what my child wants to do. And I think I probably erred on the side of helicopter parenting thinking, oh, I've got to push my kid into this thing because this is where all the other good kids are going. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it worked out great. And sometimes I think, oh, I should have just left things alone. You will forever look back and you can't do anything at this point. You know, you just have to right. hope I you know. did the right thing when you did it. <laughs> right. I know. Right. And I mean, there is no right answer. Some of it's even harmful. That's what's so crazy. It's like, it's one thing to be like, oh, am I doing enough? But then some of it might be a detriment to them. Pushing them into something could mean they don't find the path to the thing. Such a big question mark. And we're all just doing our best. So uh, hard. Sandra Bullock said in, in Hope Float, something about childhood is something that you spend the rest of your life getting over. <laughs> oh, just hope you yeah. have the resilience to keep on pushing through. Yeah. A hundred percent. So did you have to do much in the way of research? For this one, no, because it... You knew your territory. I knew I knew the territory. I mean, the, the school that this revolves around is, is fictional. And in some ways, I think probably better that I'm not directly... You know, I don't live in Manhattan. My kids don't go to school in Manhattan. I think it would be tricky to write that from like inside a school where it seems like you're literally just translating that school onto the page. So... Um, it, it was really like, um, you know, take a big mixing bowl and put little bits of different things in it to kind of come up with this school that that is vaguely, you know, familiar, but not like something where I, you know, translated it, you know, technically. So I think in a way that helped me to kind of say, this isn't real, but I think people will identify with it enough for it to kind of work. So that was a long way of saying there wasn't much research that that <laughs> needed to be done, which was kind of nice. I, it felt like yeah. it flowed out of me in that way. But you're a plotter and you're saying this book flowed out of you, yes. which yes. Okay. is at pantsing. Yes. So tell okay. us Great how question. it worked. Yes. Okay. The out, okay. I love that. I love that you caught that. Yes. So the idea, so I first had the idea for the book when I was having coffee with a friend at Starbucks who was asking me about preschool applications. Yes, preschool, preschool applications. And I'm sorry to the friend because my mind kind of wandered while we were chatting <laughs> this Audrey Singer character. And she didn't have a name yet, or I didn't know anything about her, but she popped into my mind. And I thought, what if someone stalked her? What if someone was so desperate to get into the school that they set their sights on the admissions director? The concept stuck in my head and I kind of couldn't get it out and I kept marinating on it and churning and ultimately the outline sort of flowed out of me. So that's to answer your question. It's like I started seeing different scenes and it's told from two POVs. You get both of the women's voices and that structure like sort of made itself known to me in my mind, which is unusual. Like I've never had a book come together this much in sort of like a vision, but that's how it worked. And so then, yes, I outlined it in a really detailed way, chapter by chapter. Mm-hmm. I think I might have started writing the first chapter for fun. Like sometimes I will do that just to sort yeah. of get the voice and say, is this going to work? Like, is this a world I'm going to live in and that's going to work for me? 
but then didn't write any more until I had the whole book outlined. With that said, of course, things morph and change. And of course, the characters tell you sometimes, wait a minute, that's not the right order of operations. You need to go back and rethink. So I'd say the outline's like 80% there, you know, and I'm completely open and willing to change it based on things that come up in the drafting process. But I will say the, the outlines allow the book to then kind of flow out of me because I have a I have a skeleton and having that skeleton is really freeing for me because I'm writing within a structure that I've already decided hopefully will work. I think people are brilliant who can do the pantsing, but for me, it's like too much. It's like, well, they (laughs) characters could do anything or go anywhere or be anything. And it's like too many choices. But if I've already narrowed some of the choices down, then it's really freeing in the actual writing process. What does your average writing day look like? I write when my kids are at school. I guess that that's probably the refrain of many, many yes. authors who are also parents. It really varies based on what's happening. If I'm on a deadline or really in the midst of trying to draft something and get it done, then I have a word count. Like 2,000 words is about a chapter for me. So mm-hmm. that's a good chunk. If I can get that done in a day, that's great. Sometimes I push you know, to do more. And then sometimes I push to do like a lot more if I'm really <laughs> racing to to finish. My weeks can look really different based on just what's happening in my life. So I'm not someone who's always able to be right here at the desk working every day. It depends on the season of what's happening. And if I'm doing edits or copy edits, you know, that has its own deadline and its own timeline. So I really try to look ahead and plan, you know, to get a lot of my life stuff done if I know I'm having edits coming, you know, so that then I can kind of go into a, go into my little cave. <laughs> I hear you. you write in two genres. So do you ever find yourself on deadline for both? No, because I'm, I haven't, um, I'm kind of doing one thing at a time. So yes, okay. I have, I have a YA series, um, the similars, which that was my first book. And I'm such, it feels like another world now in a funny way. Cause it, it came out before COVID and, um, just, almost feels like a lifetime ago, but I'm so, I'm so proud of that book. And I, I love YA. So it was like my first book baby and it's a mm-hmm. duology, but no, once I decided to write this adult thriller, I sort of paused on the YA. I'm in a very busy season of my life with kids and with, with kids. Um, I'm you, not, I wouldn't, be. I wouldn't yeah, be able yeah. to actively be doing both of those at once. So <laughs> understand. <laughs> Have you had any time to actually read of other authors? Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. I am a, I'm a huge reader. It's, it's still my outlet for like, it's the thing I look forward to doing most is like the end of a long day and getting in bed and curling up and reading. So yes, I just read Delicate Condition by Daniel Valentine and it was so good. It's like a spin on Rosemary's Baby, Oh, like a new take on it um, with this pregnant lady. And it it, kind of turns horror in a subtle way. It's not. Yeah like super out there, but I loved that one. I also read all of Ruth Ware's books as soon as she publishes them. I'm a huge fan. Literally, like if one comes out, then I have to just pause what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, kids. (laughs) Yeah. She's she's the author that I'll be like eating and and then I'm like not driving, but pretty much anything else. I've tried to shower and read her books. That that was not very successful. You need to get but. the audiobooks. That's what I do. Oh, then you can I shower and read. <laughs> I know. You know, I've, I've got to get on that train. I'm like the last person to 
yes, I need, I need. It I helps need with kids. I mean, except for when your kids want to talk to you, right. but it, it does right. help because you can get a lot done at the same time, which is what yeah. I probably wouldn't get anything read if I didn't have my, if you weren't listening. I know my sister just yeah. said this. She was like, what's wrong with you? You've got to get <laughs> what's wrong. Yeah. With you? And I just haven't gotten like a system for it yet. Yeah. Like with the ear pods and like knowing when I'm doing it, but, yeah. but I'm going to. Do you have any advice for new authors of your genre? Yes. I guess this will sound cheesy, but advice tends to tends to sound that way. So I'll I'll put that aside and just say, remember your path, your voice, your path is yours. And there are so many ways that a writing career can unfold. Would I have ever looked in the crystal ball and thought I would write for a soap opera and then and write a YA series and then get into writing adult thriller. Like, no, it, it, it all happened for various reasons and feels like really specifically my journey that wouldn't be replicated by someone else. Everyone's got their own path and their own way. So as an encouragement, I would say, keep your eyes on your paper because everyone's doing amazing things. And I know it can be so overwhelming to mm-hmm. try to compete. And then there's social media and you know, you see the person who seems like they're putting out three books a year, but you know, there's the person who's putting out a book every 10 years. There's so many different ways to do it. And I have to remind myself this as well, when I'm feeling overwhelmed that, you know, you can only be you and tell the stories that you can tell. And that's really special and cool. Thank you. Thank you. It's been so fun. It's flown by. To learn more, visit RebeccaHanover.com. If you're enjoying The Writing Table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support.